Hello, hello and welcome. Welcome to this Friday evening Atlas Live stream. We begin tonight's live stream with an apology <laughs> for our uh, not, not doing an ad or a preview, just scheduling this the live stream just three hours before we're beginning tonight. And uh, as we mentioned in, a po in the posts that we made in the groups and on our Atlas Alex Facebook page, we are working on our book and we spent all day writing and the the live stream simply wasn't top of mind it just simply didn't come into our mind that hey we have a live stream tonight and we haven't done an ad for it and we eventually took a break at around five o'clock and then that's when the thought came into our mind. We we haven't done we haven't announced a live stream for this this evening. We we don't have a topic. We haven't made an announcement. And then it became clear why that was. And that was this is an opportunity to for us to share the process of writing the book. And specifically the part of the book that we were working on today was an ex an explanation, a discussion, exploration of what is ego. Now we've discussed ego many times, and in esotericism, you know we we talk about it all the time. We talk about fear and anger and lust and envy, pride, all these egos. But two things come to mind. The first is, have we really gotten to the core of what an ego actually is? And the second thing is, do we have the language to describe it to others who maybe have a different understanding, who maybe have only the contemporary psychological, scientific, or philosophical viewpoint on what the ego is. The book that we are writing is an adaptation of our article, Face Your Fears, Many Faces. So the chapter that we are knee-deep in right now is talking about, well, let's face the facts about fear first before we can get into all the different facets and all the different expressions and manifestations of fear. Let's get to the heart and core of what fear is. And to do so, we must have an exploration of what ego is proper. And because the book that we're writing is intended for general audiences, for non-gnostics for the for, for lay people for what's for normies if you want to use the uh the entertainment world's vernacular for those who are not super fans or or those who are not well versed in the material 
They're just, they're just normies. They will be coming to this information for the first time, as many of us encounter on a regular basis, be it on social media, be it in our life, be it with people that we know, uh, perhaps even family. If we are trying to make some headway, explaining to them the path that we are on and the intricacies of that path, perhaps, or certainly, and if we are trying to help people, if we have individuals that we care about, or perhaps even total strangers that show up and they're suffering, they are facing obstacles in their life. And those obstacles you can see are clearly expressions of ego or are being attracted because of ego. So having the language to be able to describe or explain what egos really are and how they work and how they affect us in such a way as to allow normies to comprehend and see the big picture. How does one do that? With what language? I'm sure we all have our own approach that we take with individuals or perhaps on Facebook. But tonight, we've been called to share with you our process in writing the book. And perhaps you might be so kind as to do us the service of providing us with some feedback. Tonight's live stream then is going to take a slightly different format than we normally do, because normally our live streams are entirely unscripted. They're spontaneous. We might do some preparation in terms of uh, having some images or, or diagrams or things of that nature, visual aids prepared ahead of time. But generally speaking, we don't know what, what we're going to say until the moment that we say it. In fact, this evening, we're not sure what exactly we're going to say, other than we will be reading you some of what we wrote today. And in the reading of it, we will be pausing and perhaps elaborating or discussing or Yes, perhaps doing taking some moments in time to elaborate and discuss and expand upon and pause and give you all the opportunity to ask questions, make comments, provide feedback, uh, perhaps uh, provide corrections. If you see something that we have written there that you don't agree with, that you don't believe is correct, by all means, let us know so that we can go and double check and make sure that we're, we're not writing erroneous information because that would, be, that would be detrimental to our cause. Having said all that, in the process, in the, we don't want to give anything away because we're actually going to be describing this in the actual text we'll be reading you, uh, the chapter that we're reading you. This is an exercise. Even, we, okay. We have often said you cannot get gnosis from a book. You cannot get self-evident experiential knowledge 
just by reading about it through the intellect. And we still maintain that is true. That said, we can get through the written word a map showing us the direction. And today, or a signpost pointing pointing the way, right? So uh, a map, a signpost, or like a recipe book, right? A recipe book cannot make you a meal. It cannot and will not feed you. If you try eating the recipe book, you're not going to get very far. But the recipe in the book, if you follow it, can produce the experiential knowledge and feed you. So, but we came up with a, or a new uh, analogy and a new um, metaphor or symbol for the process by which it is possible to use language and use the intellect and use the mind consciously and engage the consciousness to create a space of information which we can then synthesize, have it organize and have it come together to synthesize and form a comprehension, a comprehensive picture of the subject at hand, in this case, the ego. And it will be our hope that in the process of this evening, you will see what we are trying to do, and then perhaps you'll be able to offer us some feedback as to whether or not you feel we were successful or that we are on the right track with this approach, or if it's too out there, nebulous, that people won't get it. Um, that's up to you. That's for you to, to provide us that feedback if you are able to do so. Um, and we're not finished this chapter, but we have enough of it written that we can go so far as to cover enough that you get the idea of where we're going and where we plan on, on continuing to take it. Um, and this is all just describing what ego is, not yet what it does and how it works, because that's the next part of this chapter. We're only talking about the first part. But hopefully, not only will you find this valuable yourself, but in, that perhaps in the process in this the process of going through this exercise, you will find it useful and valuable in your approach with dealing with others and trying to explain to others and trying to use this methodology when you're dealing with others and trying to create a a, a space of information which someone else can then synthesize in their consciousness and it all just comes together so without further ado then we have our uh, screen prepared and um 
hopefully everyone that hopefully that's legible and we'll just we'll just begin and we'll we'll pause where necessary so what is ego <clears throat> typically when we think of the word ego we likely think of one or more definitions related to the i the self as defined by contemporary psychology psychoanalysis or philosophy according to google a per, uh, ego is a person's sense of self-esteem or self-importance. For example, a boost to my ego. Or from a psychoanalysis point of view, the part of the mind that med mediates between the conscious and the unconscious and is responsible for reality testing and a sense of personal identity. And in philosophy, i.e. metaphysics, a, an ego is a conscious thinking subject. Of course, we will be using the word ego very differently in this book. We'll make clear precisely what we mean by ego and support the assertion that the definition we are using is not only the original meaning of the word, but it's true esoteric, that is, hidden nature. This definition and explanation will invariably challenge the contemporary materialist, secular, atheist definitions above. But once armed with a self-evident experiential knowledge of ego's true nature, which we can all seek and easily verify within our own consciousness, we will easily deconstruct the above erroneous definitions in due course, revealing their shortcomings, inaccuracies, and misrepresentations. The definition of ego we will work with shall prove infinitely more practical when it comes to facing the many faces of fear, especially when it comes to comprehending how and why fear behaves as it does, and by extension, how and why it makes us think and behave as we do while under its influence. To comprehend that definition, which is not arrived at via an, an intellectual process, but one of conscious contemplation and hands-on experience, we begin as one might begin any puzzle, dump, them on, dump the pieces on the table, turn them all upright, and identify the corners which will frame an emerging, detailed, and complete picture. This is the metaphor. This is what came to us as we were putting this chapter together. We do not want to get trapped into the intellectualism of syllogisms and syllogistic persuasion of rationalizations and justifications, but rather to lay all the pieces out spread them all out like we like we would in a puzzle exactly as we described it there and the first thing you do when making a puzzle an experienced puzzle player is begin to find the edges and the corners because those are the anchor points those are the pieces that have the fewest open ends they're the ones that are easiest to match and they define the big picture. And it's from the corners and the edges that you then 
move in inside and uh, and crystallize the the big picture and all of its details now it is our feeling it is our gut instinct that puzzles are a ubiquitous and uh universally understood game university universally understood toy or task that most people have made a puzzle once in their life so everybody has done this before and the thing about a puzzle is you can't approach it intellectually it's not an intellectual exercise it's there's no syllogism there's no rationalization there's no intellectualization you simply observe you seek observe and you begin to line up and match that which fits and as you start piecing those puzzle pieces together lo and behold the details begin to emerge the big picture begins to emerge it is an ex it is an exercise of gnosis it is an exercise of self-evident experiential knowledge a child can do it a puzzle is one of those wonderful family activities that everyone who from from three-year-old or four-year-old to 94 years old can sit around a table and participate and and build this puzzle together it doesn't matter what people's education is it doesn't matter what their beliefs are it doesn't right it's self-evident it's experiential it's hands-on it's conscious so let's begin dumping out the pieces and flipping them up and start putting them together and finding the corners Ego means I in Latin and is related with the word demon via demonstro, meaning I point out, the origin of demonstrate, and demonium, meaning lesser or evil spirit, a parasitic metaphysical entity which causes suffering. Incidentally, point out is monstrare in Latin and monster. Monstrum. Before a demon, ego, that is ego or I, can be found guilty, in Latin sans, in Old English sin, the etymology of sin, it must be demonstrated. The ego must be revealed. I.e., I point, uh, the ego must be revealed. I pointed out as a monster the cause of suffering. In Christian mysticism, that means bearing witness to the revelation of the seven deadly sins, fear, pride, greed, envy, gluttony, laziness, and the mother of all sins, lust, craving and aversion. For instance, lust for power, lust for fame, lust for fortune, at, at all. What bears witness to what bears witness to and can testify against the causes of suffering, proving them sinful, that is guilty, is consciousness, but only if that consciousness is illuminated. 
demons, monsters, egos, demons, monsters, egos, eyes, like so many parasites found in nature, thrive in darkness and abhor the light, precisely because it is only in the light of consciousness that they can be seen and found guilty. Light-bearing, in Latin, is Lucifer. Lucifer is also morning star and is associated with, well, actually, you know what? We're going to take a pause here for just a minute. There is actually an awful lot in this paragraph. Um, besides which, Joel Allen has made this comment here. Uh, there are so many people that will tell you that the ego is is not bad and hate the idea of de uh, demonizing it. So this is interesting evidence. Oh, okay. Which is sort of the point, right? The, the, the fact that what is, what is fascinating about the connections here, that ego is related is that the I and and I point out, like the, the pointing out of, the being aware of, the illumination of, and ego are, are intri in, intricately, intricately connected. So point out mean, is monstrare and monster, monstrum. The words monstrare and monstrum are so similar. So anyway, let, let let's continue now, and then we'll get we'll 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 take a pause uh, again to to start putting the pieces together. Okay, so light bearing in Latin is Lucifer, because we're not even beginning with the connections yet. Okay, we're just getting started. Light bearing in Latin is Lucifer. Lucifer is also morning star, and is associated with Venus, who is the goddess of love and charm, and proto italic Buenos, meaning desire, who, as the goddess of love, and love is severity and mercy, in balanced measure applied unconditionally with infinite wisdom, is the divine feminine, mother nature, the medium of reality on all dimensions, and the negating force required for all creation, destruction, evolution, and devolution in the universe. In this context, Lucifer is the torch held high in the right hand of Lady Columbia, the personification of the New World, the Americas, immortalized in the Statue of Liberty, on whose head sits a crown of seven rays. This suggests our Divine Mother, working with our individual Lucifer, can help us gain liberty from the causes of suffering by illuminating the seven deadly sins and raising our consciousness out of darkness into the light of the seven heavenly virtues. Chastity, temperance, charity, diligence, patience, kindness, and humility. Columbia comes from Christopher Columbus. According to a contributor to ThoughtCo.com, the word Columbus means dove in Latin, and Christopher means Christ-bearer. Serendipitously, the dove represents the Holy Spirit, 
Binah on the tree of life of Kabbalah, which sits atop Boaz, the feminine pillar, Columna in Latin. Right? The word pillar means Columna. Uh, and it's the Columna or pillar of severity. Christ is known as the light of the world, the redeemer of our sins, the Son of God, the Father, and Chokmah on the tree of life, which sits atop uh, Jaquin, the masculine pillar or columna of mercy. Thus, the Christ bearer is one who bears the light of the world, which can redeem us of our sins and bring us peace through the Holy Spirit, the Divine Mother, Columbia, Lady Liberty. Lucifer, the torch in Columbia's right hand, is the light bearer. And we actually are working on a, uh, a graphic uh, for the... We're actually working on a graphic for the, uh, uh, the book. And this is basically showing the... Wow, we can't uh, seem to get it on the right screen for you. It doesn't matter. We're working on a, uh, a graphic for uh, this chapter that shows the relationships between the pillars of Jaquin and Boaz and how Binah sits at the top of that columna and the, the, the relationship between columna and Columbus should be, should be clear. And that Columbus is the dove and that's the Holy Spirit that sits on the top of that column. And then, of course, Lucifer, the light bringer. And Christopher means the Christ bearer. And Christ is the light of the world. So Christopher and Lucifer are practically synonymous, if not, if not related, but certainly related. Okay. And now, this is where we get into the, the erroneous associations of Lucifer. If Lucifer sheds light on, that is, demonstrates, points out, makes conscious the causes of suffering, our eyes, egos, then it follows the linguistic relationship between Lucifer, demons, monsters, and desire morphed into the commonly understood association between Lucifer and the devil via the slow emergence of English from Latin and other Proto-English languages over centuries of hand-copied texts, liberal translations, cultural exchanges, and many other circumstances. As an aside, one of those circumstances was that in the, in the uh, Dark Ages and Middle Ages, different abbots, uh, abbeys, monasteries, were competing for favor uh, with Rome, with the Pope. And so these adversarial abbots, these uh, who ran the monasteries, often had rivalries. Who could produce the most beautiful Bible? So you, as you know, all the Bibles were hand-written and hand-copied because this was before the advent of the printing press, of the Gutenberg Bible. So everything had to be written out by hand. And so part of the process of writing Bibles was to illuminate the 
margins of the Bible and with the calligraphy and the drawings and the illumination and the gold leaf and everything else, these monasteries were competing with one another to create the most beautiful Bible that would be that would be sent to Rome, that would be sent to the Pope, and that they would receive some favor or some elevation. Maybe the abbot would would get a promotion uh, to to go to Rome or what have you. Now, in one in one such rivalry, one of the abbots had a beef or a, the, the one of the abbot's names was Lucifer which was a common name it means light bearer it was absolutely nothing associated the Lucifer didn't even appear in the Bible up until that point in no translations of the Bible preceding a certain year there's Lucifer doesn't even appear in the Bible the, the word the name Lucifer but in this particular Bible, the abbot instructed the monk who was copying the text to replace the word devil or, or Satan with Lucifer because he wanted to slight the abbot uh, at the rival monastery. And this is one such circumstance how the word Lucifer became directly associated with and synonymous with Satan. That, that little uh, event from history, that little anecdote. Nonetheless, the fact that Lucifer sheds light on our monsters and demons associates Lucifer with revealing monsters and demons. And there is another aspect to this, which we now get into. Esoterically, the fallen Lucifer, Lucifer, that is Lucifer as the fallen angel, is associated with Satan from the original Hebrew shaitan, pronounced, pronounced shaitan, meaning adversary. Also, shayatin in Islam, meaning devil or demon. Or sorry, sh shaitan in Islam, devil or demon, shayatin, plural. As is implied, should the bearer of light, that which brings enlightenment to consciousness, fall under the spell of temptation, that is hypnosis, and fall into darkness, that is ignorance, then Lucifer no longer serves our consciousness, but the adversary, the singular I we identify as, the singular ego as understood by contemporary psychology, a single demon the devil, Satan, which merely symbolizes the legion of individual psychological aggregates, egos, eyes, sins, demons, or by whatever name, which cause suffering, hypnosis, and ignorance. In synthesis, if the light of our consciousness falls into darkness, is charmed by desire in any given moment, we identify with any one of a legion of eyes, I am afraid, I am angry, I am envious, etc. And or their cravings and aversions. I want this, I don't want that. Our consciousness becomes hypnotized and ignorant of its true self, which is want for nothing. In other words, 
when Adam and Eve, symbolizing humanity, were charmed by the serpent, symbolic of lust, the inverted sexual force, the mother of all desires, Satan, all egos, and ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that is, indulged lust, became identified with the resulting desires and their causes, each expressing itself as an I, their consciousness became hypnotized, ignorant of their true selves. Their consciousness can be said to have fallen asleep, cast out from the Garden of Eden, symbolic of the age when conscious human beings once lived in relative innocence, fully aware of the supernal dimensions of reality and their true nature as monads, divine vessels of being, the being in human being. Cast out of Eden and into the desert of suffering and hardship under the continued influence of egos, humanity became limited to physical experience of and through the four bodies of sin, mental, emotional, vital, and physical bodies. If the consciousness remains asleep, our mechanical lunar bodies are constantly influenced by the metaphorical singular embodiment and epitome of all evil, the cause of all suffering in the world, in microcosm and in macrocosm, our individual Satan, our ego, our I. Ego consciousness, then, is the very nature of psychological hell. In Buddhism, a spiritual... So, okay, let's back up. Let's take a moment to, uh, to pause here. Here, we have essentially outlined the Judeo-Christian and the Western philosophical basis for the true meaning of ego the nature of the psychological aggregate, the I, and the origin of the relationship between Lucifer and the devil. But Lucifer is the light bearer and sheds light on our egos. And so, if our Lucifer becomes fallen and we become identified with what we see, if we become identified with what Lucifer shows us, then the demon, the monster, gets a hold over us. We become identified with, and we become identified with the desires that are not our desires, they're desires of the ego itself. They're the desires as, being, as we are being influenced by the monsters, the demons, that Lucifer was trying to show us. But we've fallen. We've fallen asleep. We've become ignorant. Now, as we were writing this chapter, and we did the etymology on, on Columbia and Christopher Columbus, we have in our article on the Divine Mother, and uh, we created a meme about, we always knew that Lady Columbia was... The Divine Mother, and we always knew that Lucifer was the torch in her right hand. That's the the torch in in the Statue of Liberty, and we always knew there were seven rays um, on the crown on her head. What we didn't know is that Christopher literally means Christ bearer, 
And incident, what just comes to into our mind now is we forgot to put into the chapter, who else bears the Christ? Right? Who bears the Christ if not Mary? Mary gives birth to the Christ. The Divine Mother gives birth to the Christ. So the Divine Mother who's pregnant with the potentiality of bringing Christ into the world, she is a Christ bearer. That's what it means to bear a child, is it not? This, this, this all needs to be to go in there. Again, this is another reason why this is so this process is very helpful for, for us as well. Because sometimes in the process of trying to get all these pieces and try to get the, the comprehension down onto paper, puzzle pieces are, are, are left astray. They have their place in the puzzle. But in the pro, you know, that but they get they get forgotten, they get left behind as we are focusing on putting together this part of the piece of the puzzle over here. These pieces get left behind. So by sharing it this way, by talking about it this way, by making this um, a, uh, a process that you all get to experience and participate in, um, we get to remember and we get to see that which got left on the cutting room floor for whatever reason. So we have to we have to include all that part about the Divine Mother being uh, uh, the bearer of the Christ, as in to bear children. Joel adds here, Ramakrishna says the Divine Mother is the absolute Brahman. The all of all of manifest reality is feminine all of it and insofar as every monad represents a seed a spark and essence the body of the divine mother is the primordial womb in which those seeds, those monads, develop and evolve. And we hope eventually reach a stage of development where they are ready to be born. A monad which is born into the supernal worlds is born from the primordial womb of Malkut. Because all of that monad's experiences, all their lifetimes, took place here in Malkut. And certainly, and the four bodies of sin, the, 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 the astral plane the vital in the vital body and in the physical plane. So, in no uncertain terms, and that's on that level. At the next level, that only gets a monad just awake, right? That's that's just awake, a an enlightened monad, enlightened consciousness, an enlightened being. 
a monad who gets to go to nirvana. But then from nirvana, from that level, a monad can travel back down and reincarnate and, and they can get to the next level, which is to, to become a master. And the next level, to become a bodhisattva, a resurrected master and an ascended master. There are levels and levels and levels and levels. In each level, what we are looking at is an essence, a monad, that is being planted into a womb. And even if it's not at, at, at the level of, on the physical plane, even in the metaphysical planes, they're all feminine. That's all the body of the Divine Mother. So, in that sense, right? All uh, all gods are born. Uh, must be born from the Divine Mother. In the reverse, one can visualize and conceptualize the Absolute as the Divine Mother. Because how 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 else can the Logos be born from the Absolute? The Logos which descends from the Absolute, the Ray of Okidanak, the, the, the Cosmic Christ, which descends from the Absolute, how can, how can that emerge from anything other than that which can bear such an emergence? As above, so below. It's even as, uh, even in, encoded in our chromosomes, that that we have XY chromosomes, and the female chromosome represents the X, the male chromosome represents the Y. Even on that level of nature, there is more information in the female chromosome, genetically speaking, than in the male chromosome. The whole And the whole universe, if the whole of manifest universe is feminine, then it follows the whole of the unmanifest universe is likewise feminine. The masculine, the active force, the force that moves, the force that fecundates, is only ever a seed. It's only ever a spark. That's why in the process of procreation, the seed, the masculine seed, the spermazoa, fecundates the egg. Well, the egg is enormous and the sperm is tiny by comparison. But the sperm is the one that travels. It's always, the sperm is always the one that travels. So even flowers that spread their pollen into the air or expect, or expect, or they make these beautiful flowers and they make these beautiful aromas, these perfumes and tasty sweet nectar that attracts 
insects and butterflies and honeybees and hummingbirds in the hope that these <laughs> these these nomadic in, these, these nomadic uh, travelers are going to uh, take their pollen and spread it to awaiting uh, stamens on, uh, on, on other flowers, which are just sitting there waiting to be fertilized. It's always the same. It's always the same. In the same way that we can experience here and now the reception of intuition, the reception of divine inspiration, the reception of imagination. A few years ago, Christopher Nolan made a film called Inception. And that word is such a magical, powerful word. And regardless of what you say about the the uh, the uh, the film itself. Oh, Eleftheria makes a, a poignant point po uh, point here. Sperm is the smallest human cell. The ovum is the largest. And there, there you go, right there. I mean, if you need physical evidence of the nature of the masculine force and the feminine force, there it is. So look at it another way. Right? Look at it as it expresses societally, has, as it has expressed over the last 5,000 years. Men who have had the idea planted in them, incept, it was, they were the, as vehicles and as vessels and as servants of their innermost being. There was an inception of a vision. They could see, they could, a pyramid, a cathedral, a whole city, a whole civilization. They could see it. Now all they had to do was work with the, the medium, the mass, the material, the matter, matter, M-A-T-T-E-R, comes from matter, M-A-T-E-R, which means mother. Matter, the mate. You mate the masculine impulse to build, to create, with the feminine quality of receiving that impulse and providing the resources, the material, the energy to, to realize, to manifest that inception, that impulse, that fecundation, that fertilization. Because it's just an essence, just an idea. That's all that the masculine is. But it's it's active. It's anybody who has ever had a, a passion to, to create something in the world, 
no matter what it was, know the feeling of how powerful that, that is. But it's just, it's nothing without the resources, without the feminine there, because you, you know, you can't, we have to be practical. You can't build a world with ideas. So again, what Aleftheria says here, sperm is the smallest part and the ovum is the largest. That's practical. How many, how many uh, times, perhaps, if you were in business, you know, ideas are cheap. Talk is cheap. People don't care about what your ideas are. You might have the greatest ideas in the world, but if, the, if you can't execute them or if they can't be executed, then what are they worth, really? We have to be practical about these things. And so we have to mate our manas, the idea that was incepted from divine mind, manas, with the hume. And hume is earth. Hume is that dark, black substrate, substance, which gives soil its fertility. It's that, like, the blackness, the dark richness, that's that, it has that, that smell, that soil smell, that hume. It me literally means earth. Hume Manas, human, human. That's where that comes from. It's right in, that's why human is androgynous. And yes, Manas is, that's why Manas is man. And of course, human being means the worldly embodiment of divine mind of being. That is what human being means. Hume, the earth, our earth, our, the physical embodiment, Hume. Manas, divine mind, and whose divine mind is it? It's the beings. It's not our divine mind. It's not this. It's not the. It's not the uh, the monkey mind. It's not the intellect. That's not manas. Manas is the divine mind of being. So human being is the physical embodiment of the divine mind of being. That's what human being means. Now, if you look at yourself honestly, objectively. Are you the physical embodiment of the divine mind of being? You don't have to answer that question. You just have to answer that question for yourself. But that is what it means to be a human being. And if we are not that, if we are not the worldly embodiment of the divine mind of our being, then what are we? Well, that's why we're writing the book. Because what are we? We are the adversary. We are the false self. 
We are the amalgamation of egos. We are what in Buddhism they refer to as psychological aggregates. We are hypnotized and we are ignorant of the manas of our being. So how can we be the physical embodiment of that manas? How can we be human if we are ignorant of our manas, if we are ignorant of our being? Simple. And it's that's the purpose of ego. That's what ego exists for, is to test and challenge us and oppose us and make us and tempt us to become identified with it and to fall and fall from the Garden of Eden, fall from the supernal worlds, fall from our connection to grace, to our connection with our innermost being, to our higher self, to lose our manas, to fall into the hume. So in Buddhism, a spiritual philosophy which developed completely independently of the West and any Greco-Roman or Judeo-Christian influences, egos are called psychological aggregates and echo everything we have shared so far. In the words of the Buddha himself, all suffering is manifest as desire. In Buddhism, the desert of suffering Adam and Eve were cast out into is the world of Maya, illusion. This is as far as we've gotten on, on this particular topic today um, that we wrote today. So this is um, we're not prepared to get into uh, maybe some of these things here. Well, maybe we will. I don't know. Um, so the next part of this chapter, we will be looking at the Eastern traditions of ego and that will encompass also uh, likely uh, Sufism, Hinduism and Buddhism. And if there is sufficient information and evidence at our disposal, then we will might bring in the uh, Mesoamerican tradition, the uh, um, of the Mayans and the Aztecs, and the Inca, if it's, if it's relevant, and the Olmecs and the Toltecs, again, if it's relevant. But so far, you can see the approach that we're taking here. It's, a, it's, it's very much as it came to us, say, you know, just put it out there and trust your reader to recognize that all of these connections and that all of these these are there these are too many connections and too many coincidences to just be coincidence that there really is something going on here and there really is something to this and when you compound the judeo-christian and the western uh the greco-roman western philosophical traditions, when you compound that with the traditions from the East, traditions which were largely separate and developed independently of one another, um, this is our hope, is that 
we're going to be uh, developing and getting to a place where, of course, the the reader will begin to recognize and have a better opportunity to to comprehend rather than intellectualize because we're not we're not trying to do a syllogism here where this is this this is that therefore that is that maybe there's a little bit of that here and there because we're we want to nudge people in the right direction perhaps but we 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 generally speaking leave those sorts of statements to the end of paragraphs or to the end of a section and allow all the pieces there and just sort of talk around the pieces and just sort of show them in other words don't just tell but show and tell if that's the right um if that's the right way to say it dylan asks out of curiosity does freud's super ego play any practical part in the realms of ego the theory says it suppresses urges of the id and try to get the egos to behave morally like a negotiator between our good nature and the demons of ego so freud's ego super ego and id is basically in esotericism the It is not exactly mapped one-to-one, -one, but approximates what in esotericism we call the conscious, the unconscious, and the subconscious mind. Now, the thing about Freud's superego is that it's, it's not... It's super, not in the sense of, well, it's in, it's in this, it's super in the sense of it's superseding and being supra, meaning beyond ego. So it's outside our, our, our conscious, what, what he called consciousness, which is also what Jung called the ego. And that Jung related it also to that, but to that awareness that we have, right? The like consciousness, like the conscious self. That's what they called ego, this I, right? The self. They were equating that to that, and they believe that that's the true self. They they lost Freud and Jung lost the the concept of true self and false self, because for Freud, it's the superego. And uh, for Jung, it's the unconscious mind. And it's unconscious to us because we're asleep. So again, a, a few minutes ago, we were talking about Hume, Hume and Manas. The human being is the physical embodiment of the divine mind of being. The divine mind of being is largely, we are largely unconscious of that, right? We're largely not conscious of what our being is thinking, for lack of a better expression, right? We're unconscious of that. We're unconscious of our higher self. 
We don't know ourselves. We identify with this, with these thoughts, this body, these emotions. And most of these thoughts and emotions and sensations arise into our conscious awareness from where? The subconscious. The subconscious mind is where all the egos are. Because why? Why is it subconscious? Because number one, it's heavier, it's denser. And secondly, it's darker. It's dark. This is what Jung took further and, and understood better than Freud did. Because Freud chalked up the id, in other words, the source of all of our, uh, our negative and harmful behaviors, he blamed it all on sexuality. And insofar as he had that intuition, that was that's because lust is the mother of all egos. <clears throat> the reason why Freud is rife with sex, and for Freud, everything comes back to sex, because he had the intuition that all negative behaviors and all negative emotions feed on the primal sexual instinct, the, the primal instinct of lust, the, the, the instinct to, to, to reproduce. So we have lust for power, lust for fame, lust for fortune, lust for the property and the success of others. That's envy. Then we have lust for comfort and security, and that's fear. And we have lust for food. It's all lust. It's all desire, cravings and aversions. So Freud was on the right track. But he couldn't get, he, he got bogged down in, in sex and sexuality. And that he, he's, his mind, his human mind, his intellect, started grasping at straws to explain away this intuition that he had about lust. And so he created sex. And then so, and then he started, his mind started coming up with all these narratives about every young man wants to kill his father and marry his mother, right? The Oedipus complex, because he started going through the literature and philosophy and ancient uh, mythology and everything else. And he started identifying all the stories in which sex played a role. And we, he started mapping all of these stories onto his theory. And then that's how he came up with the Freudian worldview. Um, and so that is where the id came from. And that's what uh, Jung called the subconscious mind. And Jung said, unless you make the subconscious conscious, it will, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. And that's why Jung came up with shadow work, and comprehending the shadow because he felt that in the subconscious mind were all the shadow archetypes lurking in the subconscious mind and that we have to bring the subconscious mind into the light to comprehend the shadow self to become whole again right and we've talked about this in the live stream on shadow work the problem with jung was is that he focused too much on the negative archetypes and the integration of negative archetypes or the way that people misunderstood or misrepresented Jung or the way that Jung didn't 
the Jung didn't focus on egos. That archetypes are composites, but they're only they they only exist by virtue of the egos that empower them. In the same way that a hero, the hero archetype, cannot exist without the virtues of a hero. Courage, stalwartness, kindness, all the all the typical uh, all the typical things that a hero needs, right? To be fortitude, like we call intestinal fortitude, right? The ability to endure and all of these things like that strength and all of these other qualities and characteristics that a hero has. These are virtues. Without the virtues, you can prop, you can prop up the hero archetype all you want, but the, you can't have a hero if that hero doesn't exhibit the virtues that make him thus. And all archetypes are like that. All archetypes are composites of these, these underlying things we call virtues. In the same way, the shadow, the, the, the archetypes of the shadow, for example, the villain, which is the opposite of the hero, what makes a villain? If not greed, envy, lust, fear, So, okay, so again, superego, ego, id can roughly map onto unconscious, conscious, and subconscious, roughly. In the Jungian world, it's a little, gets a little bit more muddied. However, it's also becomes a little bit more clear at the same time. It's that they had a, uh, they had an interesting relationship Jung and, and Freud, because Jung wanted to very much break free of Freud. Uh, he didn't he didn't want to be seen as uh, riding on the coattails of his mentor his entire life. So there's a lot of ego actually that, that comes into play in the in the um, in the unfolding of of that history and the development of of Jung's uh, theory. Dylan, does that answer your question? That's uh, maybe maybe we should ask that if we answer the question. We're wondering if we should uh, continue here, and probably we don't have enough here to uh, to continue. The next part of this, the next part of this chapter is going to be discussing again the eastern part, but then also we're going to get into how egos work, and the that we have memes about it and stuff. We've talked about the um, the hierarchy and the egos at the top of the pyramid and the egos that the top of the pyramid is a locus of, of control. And the egos are like, they're like piglets that are jockeying for position at their, at the, at the mother sow's teats. And after a piglet has had its fill, it gets, it gets bumped out by a, by a new pig, piglet which is hungry, which needs to feed. 
And so that's why it is that we can have experiences where that is why we can have experiences where we have the last slice of cheesecake, which we know we shouldn't have, but we really want it. And so we have it. And then the second we've, we've finished eating it, immediately up comes regret. And because we've, we gave in to that temptation, we gave in to that gluttony. And then riding right on the coattails of that little moment of lucidity Right on the coattails of that regret comes shame. Comes and worrying about the summer and swimsuit season and looking good in a bathing suit or our diet that we're on or whatever. And now we start and then so gluttony wanted to suck at that teat it got its it got it what it wanted it got us to give into that gluttony and eat that last piece of cheesecake so that piglet had his fill and then he gets bumped out by another hungry piglet and this hungry piglet is pride shame and now that piglet is sucking on that teat and is and is filling our mind with with all of these thoughts and filling our and and creating emotions in us of of shame and regret and perhaps even self-loathing and beating ourselves up oh i'm such a cow i'm i have no willpower what kind of gnostic do i call myself i can't even stop myself from eating a slice of cheesecake what kind of so-called spiritual person am I? Blah, 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 blah. And all of this is just sucking energy and bottling up consciousness. As that little piglet of shame, of pride, starts sucking on the teat that a moment earlier, gluttony was sucking on. That's why it is that one moment we can be so absolutely sure that we want something and that we deserved it, that we've worked hard, that we worked out today, and that it's okay. And, you know, and despite the fact that our consciousness is saying, no, nah, you probably shouldn't have that second piece of cheesecake. But we're so sure we want it. And we want it so desperately and we, we feel it and we feel it in our body and, you know, the sugar, you know, cravings and everything else. And then the moment we have, with the moment we have it, boom, we don't want it anymore. <laughs> that's how that, that's how that works. Because as soon as that ego is satisfied, boom, it's gone. And all the rationalizations and all the excuses and all the justifications goes with it. Because now there's a new ego in town. There's a new ego that's at the top of the uh, pyramid at the, at the, in the driver's seat, at the locust of influence, at the locust of control. There's a new piglet at the, sucking at the teat. 
And that new piglet is very different from the last piglet. Wants the same energy, wants the same consciousness, but it has an entirely, entirely different uh, uh, way of get of going about getting it. Right? It's a, a different. It's a different ego. Gluttony, gluttons, gluttony desires food. That's what it does. That's what it wants. That's all it can do. It's mechanical. It's a program. It's an algorithm. In the in as we describe in the book, fear, fears. This part we can read to you because we, we wrote this today as well. This part we can read to you. But before we do that, Dylan has a couple more comments. Very much so with the subconscious and con uh, conscious minds. He was, I asked him if I had answered his question, so that's good. And he follows up. You made an interesting point about shame. So much of the New Age spiritualism seems to promote a face of entire shamelessness. The polar opposite can be just as toxic, almost like an ego. Because uh, we live in a world that does not comprehend that too much that that pride is an abuse of love egos this is this is again again this is so helpful for us to have these live streams because as we spontaneously answer these questions as the logos answers through atlas and and we hear it right i hear it coming out of my mouth i it's 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 top of mind think ah i got to put that in this chapter on ego i got to remember to write this i got to remember to write that because again when i'm alone in my room and it's just all in my head and i'm not spontaneously speaking it out loud because whom i i've no one to speak to then it's it's the 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 process is somehow i mean it's still there but it's it's a different process and it's somehow less voluptuous it's less comprehensive clearly you all can see that we have no difficulty speaking we we were on stage we have done communication we did public speaking we were on radio and uh we've done we've been served as master of ceremonies and we we've hosted trade shows and we've hosted award shows people have asked us to serve as mc for a long time we don't have a difficulty getting up on stage and allowing our being to express through us again a lot of it comes from our uh, just our personality as a Gemini being a uh, uh, an extrovert, but also through our training as acting as a martial art and getting in touch with our center, our being, and allowing the energy to flow through us and manifest. In other words, being a physical embodiment of the divine mind of being, right? Being a human being and being that in performance on stage. So... So this is a, for us, it's a very helpful uh, process. So every ego, because ego bottles 
up consciousness. Consciousness, ego without consciousness cannot exist. And qualities of consciousness, ego filters those, right? So an, uh, an ego is nothing but a program. It's like a, it's like a, uh, a slide, um, a 35 millimeter slide. Okay, do you remember the old slide projectors, perhaps from from school? Uh, perhaps you remember you got those slideshows and there was 35 millimeter slides and they put them in the, the carousel and then there was a projector and they projected the slide onto the screen. Okay, so the ego is the slide and the light is consciousness. So the ego steals the consciousness and then projects itself onto the screen of our psyche. And that screen is either our mind, our heart, or our body. So it projects what it wants. Now, slide is all well and good, but a slide is static, isn't it? Right? A slide is, a, uh, is, is just an image. So more aptly put, uh, ego is film. And ego has stories. Egos will play their stories on the screen of our mind. And every ego wants to have its story in the projector. It wants the light of consciousness, right? Projecting what it wants onto the screen of our mind, heart, and body. So the light, the same light of consciousness that is able to project pure light, pure love, and unadulterated objective reality, if it's filtered with a, with a film going past it in front of it, then now there's a story, there's a narrative, and it can be a false narrative, or it can be a temptation, it can be a persuasion, a rationalization, right? Any number of things, uh, all these different tricks and tactics that the egos have. But one of the things that they are, are a modification of the light. Every movie that plays on a screen is modified light. It's filtered light. And if we comprehend all egos that way, then pride is a modification of self-love. Pure self Now, this is where the film uh, analogy the, and the movie projector analogy breaks down. Why? Because if pure light is the middle road of the razor's edge, egos can create of, and self-love is a good thing, right? We It's important to love ourselves. That's a good thing. But the ego of pride comes along. And what does it do? It has us love ourselves too much. Or love ourselves too little. Not enough. And because love is severity and mercy, the expressions of this can be uh, too much mercy, right? Too much self-love, too much kindness to ourself 
In other words, we, we go too easy on ourselves. And we love ourselves so much. And we're so deserving of everything. And, and, you know, and we're never hard on ourselves. It's never our fault. So this is a narcissist. It's very kind to themselves. All the time they want to be kind to themselves. Right? And they expect everybody else to be kind and generous towards themselves. And they love themselves. That's a narcissist. That's pride. And on the flip side of that, you have someone who not only doesn't love themselves or loves themselves too little, they hate themselves. If love is severity and mercy in balanced measure, applied unconditionally with infinite wisdom, that is love, then the ego is able to modify that. And pride can modify it this way, too much, or this way, too little. Or really, what it's doing is it's doing too much severity. And so some people who have shame and self-loathing, they start beating themselves up. They have self-sabotaging behavior. They'll cut themselves. They'll, they'll, they'll literally beat themselves up. They'll whip themselves. Or, you know, those like the, the penance that, uh, that some like, you know, um, fanatical monks and priests used to do in the dark ages. They would flagellate themselves because they were they had so much guilt, they had so much shame. They believed that if they had they they put themselves through voluntary suffering in that way, that they could cleanse themselves, like they could be Christ-like. If they but but it's just it's just pride, right? The idea that this physical body and this physical being is going to become Christ-like by locking themselves in the tower in the dungeon and flagellating themselves with a whip that's pure delusion that's pure pride where is the where is the balance of severity and mercy applied unconditionally with infinite wisdom in that scenario right so so here's where we can see how the middle way as buddhists describe it is always that, this middle path. And on either side of the path is the abyss. So it's the reason why it's the path of the razor's edge. It's not just, it's not just um, with white tantra, right? So you have to have, have sex without indulging the desire to fornicate. Have sex without falling for the temptation of orgasm and spilling the sexual force and inverting the sexual force through the orgasm, through lust, and creating the kunda buffer organ. It's not just that, right? On the other side of that is those that hate sex, those that are ashamed of sex, those that despise sex, those that are going to be celibate, those that believe purity is avoiding uh, success entirely. Because with every case, like in pride, pride and shame are two sides of the same coin. It's a modification of love. Lust, likewise, it's a modification of love. It's love taken to this extreme. Because remember, 
severity and mercy and balanced measure applied with infinite wisdom unconditionally. So lust takes our turns our love for someone else into infatuation and per, because love what would one not give to someone else what would you not give to someone whom you love you would if you really love them you might even give your life for them right you would push them out of the way of a of a of a moving car with with no with no thought as to your own safety right you would you would you would sacrifice yourself for others that's love so love has that built into it so lust takes that and says oh love is all about giving of ourselves well i got something to give you baby and that's lust now, the other side of love, of course, is to receive. Who doesn't want to receive love? So likewise, lust says, give it to me, baby. Give it to me. It's, it's every ego can only work with the light that's shining through it, that it's modifying. Every ego has to... Because egos don't really exist. They are. This is another thing that Jung was onto with his with the shadow and the shadow archetypes. Just as archetypes in the world of Atsuluth, in the zero dimension, the, the, the first dimension of manifestation, the seventh dimension, if we're counting it from our point of view, the world of archetype is where we have the unmanifested essences of form. That's what an archetype is. An unmanifest essence of form. The divine blueprint, which is so subtle, it doesn't exist in any... in any, in any form. It's just... It's just an essence. It's not even a thought. It's not even a concept. It's not even drawn yet. It's 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 in in many ways it's like pure mathematics without the numbers. If you can conceptualize that. And of course the mind it's very tough for the mind to conceptualize absolute because the mind can only conceptualize visually or orally or or Right? We, we can only think about things how we can think about them. Now, as above, so below. In the process of crystallization, archetypes, the unmanifest essences of form, descend through downward along the ray of creation, the omnipresent ray of Okidanak, through the different worlds, the different sephiroth of the tree of life, and then finally into the into the ninth sphere where they become manifest as electromagnetic energy the electric universe that electric universe gets experienced through ego mind as the three-dimensional universe that 
that we experience because everything is just an electromagnetic spectrum. Everything is electric, everything is energy, but we experience that at our level of consciousness as physical reality. Now, if that's true for these archetypes that descend and crystallize right into that space, egos, likewise, are just like archetypes. So this is what Jung got right. And the shadow in the in the subconscious mind are only these archetypes, these shadows. But he was so concerned about these literary mythological archetypes that he forgot the foundational building blocks of those archetypes, which are the opposites of the virtues, the, the those virtues that are embodied in consciousness itself, in the light itself, in love itself. So you end up with fear, greed, lust, etc. And these are just programs. They're like programs or algorithms. Now, what algorithm or what program do you know of that can cause any harm? What malware can cause any harm without, without an operating system to infect? without a hardware that's that's running that operating system and without being able to access and without the hardware having electricity powering the hardware that enables the operating system to run that the malware then infects. If we look at energy as light, if we equate the two, the malware uses, that's why we call them the four bodies of sin, the heart, the mind, the vital body, and the physical body. Because all the all egos are, are malware, parasites, but they're metaphysical parasites, just like malware, all they want is to infect one or more of the, the bodies, the four bodies of sin of our, of our human machine. And they want to run their program. They want to run their algorithm. They want to use up precious system resources. And they want to use those resources to replicate themselves, okay, copy themselves, and spread and infect and gain ever more control over ever more system resources. That's what, that's what egos are. So if you believe in the viral theory of infection, egos are viruses, right? If you believe that viruses want to take over the cell, want to turn the cell into a uh, manufacturing facility for manufacturing more viruses that go and infect more cells and spread throughout the body and then overcome the body with disease, that's what egos are. But egos, egos affect the metaphysical bodies that have a resulting effect on the physical body because 
the metaphysical bodies are the foundation of the physical body. And egos want, and egos um, uh, want the physical body to express their will, right? Their programming. That's part. That's part of the point. So, Benjamin. So Joel L has a couple quick little comments here. He says, first of all, love it. Um, second of all, he said, glad you're covering the topic of the middle path. We go, well, it's important. And Benjamin asks, where are those programs or instructions coming from? Are they coming from the planets, the archons? That's a good question. So the answer is, the short answer is they're coming from archons. And the longer answer is that Archons work for mechanical nature and the White Lodge. They come from the, the egos are the Black Lodge. And they come from the Archons. But isn't it interesting that for all of the seven deadly sins, we have the seven great virtues, the seven heavenly virtues. And isn't it interesting how as above, so below. And is it, isn't it interesting that even Carl Jung uh, identified these supernal archetypes and then the shadow archetypes? In other words, this whole system is, and how many times have we, uh, have we mentioned and have we, uh, we have put up the um, the visualization right how many times have we put up the visualization of chess and on wednesday we talked about uh kingdom of heaven ridley scott's kingdom of heaven and there's that beautiful scene with king baldwin the fourth and balian when he's playing where they're, they're playing chess and uh, King Baldwin explains to uh, Balian, the whole world is in chess. And Master Samael writes beautifully, beautifully about chess and the esoteric significance of chess, the, the absolute perfection of chess as not just a game but as a as a microcosm for for the for for being of the the microcosm of the of the universe a microcosm of the tao in action the manifest universe All of the narratives, all the archetypes, all the stories are embodied in chess. If you really understand chess and you can penetrate the symbol, the symbols and the allegories being played out, what the different pieces represent. For instance, Joel L. mentioned just a, a earlier. He said, Ramakri Ramakrishna 
says the Divine Mother, is the absolute Brahman. And we went on this whole, and then Eleftheria says, sperm is the smallest human cell, the ovum is the largest. And we were talking about the feminine and masculine and how, and how the masculine's role as the essence and its fragility and that it's nothing. It's tiny. It's the smallest little piece. It's just an idea. It's just a concept. It's just an essence. It's just a whatever. What piece is that on the board? That's the king. The king is by far the weakest piece. It can move in more directions than a pawn. That's true. But it's the most vulnerable. And in fact, because you can't you can't check a pawn. A pawn can, but a king cannot remain in check. If the king remains in check, that's checkmate. Checkmate. There's that word again. Why mate? Remember what we said about mate? And the relationship with mate and matter? The most powerful piece on the board is what? We can run down the pieces, right? We have pawns. We have eight pawns. So clearly, that's cannon fodder, right? The pawns are cannon fodder. They're the first line. They're the infantrymen. They're the they're the 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 weakest pieces on the board, really. But their strength are in numbers. Right? A single termite, not a threat. A few, a handful of termites, nah, a nuisance. A termite hive? A termite mound? A termite mound can kill a honey badger. If we're talking about Africa or Australia, the big, the big carpenter ants and these big ass termites. If a, if a honey badger becomes too desperate for food and tries to take out a termite mound, because they dig and stuff like that, if, if they're not careful, they can be overwhelmed by, these, uh, by, by the, uh, the colony of uh, ants. And the sheer strength and numbers can take them down. If they're not careful, or if they're too weak, for example, they don't have enough energy or, uh, or they're dehydrated, or like, you know, it's in drought situation or whatever. Under normal circumstances, honey badgers are designed to dig in. And, uh, well, those are, there are different animals that do this. Palanquins, right, have the long tongues that go in after ants and whatever. But the palanquins are armored. A palanquin has armored shells. They have scales that the, uh, that the, the, the termites can't, you know, can't get in and can't bite, bite the palanquin. Um, so Benjamin answers the question. The queen is the strongest and the best piece. Yes, you are correct. The queen. The king, the weakest. The queen, the strongest. However, however, the king is still the point of the game. It's the weakest piece. It's the most vulnerable piece. That's why, that's why we say it's the weakest. It's technically not the weakest. A pawn is the weakest. But you have eight pawns 
and only one king. So that's why we mean that that the strength of the pawns, that row of pawns, comes from the fact that there are eight of them. The rest of the pieces come in pairs. You have rooks, you have bishops, and you have knights. And they the rooks move horizontally, the bishops move diagonally, and the knights move in that unique L-shape pattern, which not only, uh, they're the only piece in chess that can that can jump over other pieces and not be a, not, they don't need a clear line of sight, in other words, to their destination. And if you look on a chessboard, the way that uh, a knight can move, it is two swastikas that are superimposed. So it, there are two swastikas, one swastika rotating in one direction and the other swastika rotating in the other direction. So it's the, in the actual movement of the game, you have the, it's like, it's interesting because someone recommended to us that we watch the wheel of time and the wheel of time is in no uncertain terms. I mean, we've only watched two episodes of it, but the title of the book comes from the wheel of samsara or the wheel of becoming in the buddhist tradition and because it's all about returning souls and reincarnation and this is a heavy theme we're only two episodes into the first season but it was recommended to us by a gnostic so we thought well you know at the end of a at the end of the day of writing a book all day we 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 do need an opportunity to turn off our our brain for an hour or two um, and give our brain a rest. So, well, we'll, we'll see, we'll, we'll, we'll see if there's anything of value there because who knows, maybe we'll do a live stream on it or something at some point. But, uh, but therein, therein lies the wheel. And in chess, we have these shapes and these movements that reflect all of that, including the swastika in the, in the night. And then, of course, you can get into the actual symbolism of the individual character or the individual pieces and the and their meaning. And this is what Samael does. And I, we can't, I can't remember, I can't remember what book it was in or what lecture it was in that he talks about chess. Maybe Joel knows. But, um, but I do remember reading that passage and it was uh it was very beautiful and it was meaningful to me because of course i played chess uh competitively when i was young um i stopped playing competitively because it became for me um it became um sacrilege became grotesque to be treating chess as this vehicle for competitive it, it, it was I was losing my love for the game I was losing losing my love for the game chess was no longer 
fun, when it was competitive. It just became this intellectual exercise. And it just became a battle of this person's ability to memorize and, and see moves and how many moves ahead can he see versus how many moves ahead can you see. It just became a very mechanical intellectual thing. And I lost my passion and love for the game. And why? So I still went to chess clubs at the University of Guelph. And uh, from the age of 13, I was going and playing, you know, these guys at the uh, University of Guelph that were some, some were professors, some were, you know, chess masters. I had a, I had a chess rating on the International uh, Federation of Players for the longest time. I never really got very high in the rating because, again, I didn't enjoy competition. And you can only increase your rating by going to, by going to sanctioned chess competitions and defeating stronger players. And um, competition was never really, I was never really into that. I didn't need to prove anything to anybody. I just like going to the chess club and playing. I especially enjoyed speed chess. I really enjoyed speed chess where you put a clock and each each player has five minutes. And you take turns back and forth and you hit the clock so that after you make your move, you hit your, hit your clock, your clock stops, his clock starts ticking. And you have, so basically five minutes aside, you play an entire game of chess in 10 minutes or less. And, and if someone takes too much time thinking, well, their clock can run out, the flag drops, and then they lose. So that was very, I, I really connected to speed chess because you didn't do a lot of thinking. You didn't have to do a lot of thinking. It was intuitive. You, you, you played from your gut and you saw the big picture. You had to comprehend the overall story of what was happening in the world on the board. And you, and you trusted your intuition. You trusted your gut feeling on where to move the piece and how to be. And then if you had a really good opponent, he was doing the same thing. My best friend in high school and I would play two minutes aside. Two minutes aside, playing an entire game of chess in four minutes total. That's all we had. We called it it's we called it lightning chess. And it's a little bit ridiculous. It's a little silly. But the joy and the 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 fun that we had playing chess this way was just it was just a joy. It was just um so it was this and there it was amazing because at times it really did feel like I wasn't the one playing. I was being played. Something was playing me. And whereas in a competition, because of the pressure, because of the stress, because of everything else, you, your mind was always getting in the way. It was always second guessing. Like even if you had an intuition... Oh, I should move, you know, I should move the knight over there. The mind started obsessing over, yeah, but what if this, what if he does this? And what if he does that? And what if he does this? And, does that, and is that really a safe place? And what's good about it, right? As soon as you had an intuition, your mind would start jumping. If you have too much time in chess, 
your mind can screw you up. Unless, of course, you're Gary Kasparov or one of these guys. But if you ever want to watch a fascinating film, um, there's a film about Bobby Fischer. And, um, oh gosh, what's the actor who plays Bobby Fischer? Um, I can't remember either actor, but it's, it's the great summit um, between Bobby Fischer and uh and the russian the uh, karpov is it karpov and there's two very well-known hollywood actors playing these two these two uh, uh chess players and the world chess championships and it was in the 70s taking place in the late 70s and it was this great summit and chess rose suddenly to the level of an international incident. It was on the news every single night. Bobby Fischer playing the current world champion, Russian. And they were playing for the title of uh, best in the world. And, and this was in the height of the Cold War. And so this became a politicized and overblown media circus around this this world championships. And if you have any interest in chess whatsoever, if you ever, and, but what are the interesting things about this film is that it reveals just how wound up and high strung these grandmasters, they're called in chess, grandmasters, um, how tightly wound their mind is and how, how delicate it is because there's a scene where Bobby Fischer demands that they move the chess game out of the room that they're in because one because one of the fluorescent lights is buzzing and he can't concentrate. He can't keep his mind on the game because there's this hum in the lights. And um, and by the end of the tournament, the Russian is doing the same thing. It's like he's he's caught he's caught the mental problems the 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 mental delicacy from Bobby Fischer, <laughs> and now he's complaining the same thing. And it's like in the in in at this level of chess, when two grandmasters are playing at a world championship, there is absolute silence in the room. There are no distractions. There is no photography. There's, there is no movement. The only movement are the two players as they move their pieces, they touch the clock, they write their moves, maybe they take a drink of water. That's it. They're so into it. They, they're, they're, they require their concentration and everything is so much. Any little thing might break their concentration, might... might you know, might uh, throw a monkey wrench in the works. This is uh, individuals who are entirely too much in their mind, really. And they, they're very easily unhinged. And that's what the film is about, because Bobby Fischer kind of lost his marbles. He kind of went crazy. Or that's certainly the way he was presented in the media. However, he was an absolute genius chess player. He was one of the greatest chess players of all time. He practically invented entire new openings and entire new that were 
previously unknown to the chess world. And uh, there's another great film called Searching for Bobby Fischer that's not about Bobby Fischer. It's about a young boy who's a chess prodigy. And uh, But again, it's another... If you like chess, if you're interested in chess, and the... Um, there is a new show on Netflix called The Queen's Gambit, which apparently is all about a woman who plays chess, a young woman who plays chess. We haven't watched it, and uh, we might give it a we might give it a watch, and uh, if it's any good, we'll 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 let you know if it's worthwhile looking into. From what we can gather, it's more about a woman in the world of chess, which is normally dominated by men. So like, that's the feeling we got from the trailer, but but it might not be about that. It might it might be a uh, um, there might be more about chess in it. So we'll let you know. So yes, the queen is the strongest piece on the board. And, but this all relates back to Benjamin's question about where do these instructions, where do these programs come from? Well, because how can you have a game and how can you have a challenging game without equal odds? How can you have a challenging game if it's not balanced? If your adversary isn't equipped to win, if your adversary can't win, it's not much of a game. It's not much of a challenge. So that's the... The real answer is in chess. And that's the beauty and magic of that game. There has never been a game to match it. The Chinese have Go. It is, it is every bit as complex. And in sort of the, the oriental fashion, it's just, it's like beads and it's black and white. It's, it's, it's. Who has called it Chinese checkers, right? It's a very sophisticated, complicated game. It's a, it's been quite a challenge for the developers of AI to be able to create a Go and an a an artificial intelligence that can rival a Go master or grandmaster. We're I'm we're not familiar enough with Go to be able to comment. But on the surface level, at least, right? Go does not have the magic of archetypes. Because Go is ultimately different colored black and white beads on a board, like checkers. So yes, it's got the black and white, it's got that black and white aspect to it, just like the chessboard or a checkerboard and the black and white pieces. But the pieces themselves mean something. We have archetypal qualities, values to the pieces themselves. And as we mentioned, we have this all-powerful piece on the board, which is the queen, our divine mother. And we, you know, 
as Gnostics, we constantly mention how self-observation is important, but self-remembering, remembering our Divine Mother, is just as, if not more, important. That's probably not fair to say it's more important. But we cannot advance on the path without her. Our innermost essence is just a spark. It's just a seed. Our inner king, our innermost being, is like a king on the board. What the hell is a king on the board without the queen? In fact, that's one of the ways, if you ever are playing chess with a young child or someone who's significantly less skilled at chess than you are, one of the things you do is you start the game, you, you take your queen off the board. You handicap yourself. It's one of the ways that masters and grandmasters, when they're playing less experienced players, and less uh, players of less skill, they want to help those players get better, but they don't want to slaughter them, because what good is that? So they'll take their queen off the board. Or they'll take a bishop or a, a rook or, a, or one of the other pieces, right? They'll handicap themselves. It's one of the ways, it's, it's one of the ways that you can do that. And if you've ever played chess by taking your queen off the board, it is a excellent way to develop skills using your other pieces. It's also an extraordinary way to comprehend just how important that queen is, how important the divine feminine is on the board and in our life. You know what I forgot to do? I forgot to do this. Um, forgot to share the link to the live stream that if anybody wanted to jump on that they should jump on um i'll be honest with everyone i've uh spent all day writing and i wrote a lot more today than what we shared with you but this is what we wanted to share with you tonight and um, we needed to hear ourselves say it out loud as we did and with the elaborated discussion we recognized more things more aspects that that need to go into that that part uh, but we're at the two-hour mark um, for us it would be perfectly fine if we called it a night here and everybody had either an early night or you had the, the rest of the night to do whatever it is you want. Or we'd be just as happy if some people want to pop on the live stream and ask questions or have a discussion or share whatever you want to share. Or We leave it entirely to you. We, we put it in your hands how you want to play it because... Um, we've, again, with all this work that we did today, uh, we don't really have anything left sort of prepared to, to talk about. But if you ask us a question or start a topic or a conversation, like 
like we just talked for what 15 20 minutes about chess right so ask us something else or or offer some feedback give some feedback about what you heard tonight the approach that we're taking um in the attempt to create a that that way of giving people a way to experience a comprehension by by showing all these serendipitous connections and then once we do that we're going to see if we can find a way to visualize that in some way maybe it's some kind of a word map or mind map or that's what they call these things mind maps or whatever maybe we can construct a mind map and include it at the beginning of the chapter or the end of a chapter um that's one of the things that our our good friend uh ryan recommended to us is that he says you know we're very good at visuals so be sure to include visuals that support or add to contribute value to the chapters that we submit uh, as we seek literary representation and or publication of the of the material because certainly i feel that he's right on that and that um that is one of our strengths so it makes sense to to do that but at this point sort of wanted to i want to i want to as much as possible to make this a show don't tell experience for the reader where i'm we're not just planting a seed i'm planting seeds and providing the fertile soil the space and painting that picture providing all those puzzle pieces and hopefully together with the reader we 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 help bring them together and synthesize them into a complete comprehensive picture which they can comprehend and have some kind of epiphany or have some kind of experience with that. We're open to any questions or comments, or if anybody wants to pop on the live stream. Uh, if not, then as we said, okay. What you, Benjamin says, what you've shared so far is very beautiful. The allegory of chess and about walking the middle path. I had an epiphany today through what you said, but I could not express it well in words. Thank you, sir. Well, it warms our heart. Thank you, Benjamin, for sharing. It warms our heart if, if, if that's true. One of the things about this meme that we created The black, if the black pieces are our egos, and they're what we need to defeat, right? The forces of evil, the Black Lodge. One of the interesting questions is that, well, 
who's moving those pieces? Because when you play chess, you need an, an opponent, an adversary. And we call that adversary shaitan, Satan, the egos, the amalgamation of all our egos. True. But we also know that egos are created by the abuse of the sexual force. And that egos multiply themselves, replicate themselves by consuming sexual energy. Because the sexual energy, energy of the Divine Mother, is the creative destructive force in the universe. That's the energy that egos use to replicate themselves. That's their food, in other words. Consciousness is their resource but sexual energy is their is their food well we will come up with a better analogy the better analogy might be every living thing requires two different things to sustain them. We need oxygen, but we also need food and water. Right? We have two systems. We have, we have the digestive system that feeds our, that sustains our body and everything, but then we also have respiration. We have those two things. Egos are no different. They need two things. One of the things they need is consciousness. The other things they need is sexual energy. They need both of those. Just like we need, we need food and water, and we need oxygen to survive. If we have those two things, if those two systems, respiratory and digestive, are working, we can, we can exist. We can live. Yes, 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 we know there are breatharians and these they're, they're people who can live on solar light alone and we know that yogis can live without food for years and all that stuff. Those are the outliers. We're talking about how the human machine was designed and how it functions normally and under normal circumstances for the vast majority of people on the planet. Well, the vast majority of egos require both consciousness and sexual sexual energy. So Benjamin adds, uh, yes, the shadows depend on light. Well, so if if this is true, right, the 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 egos are created with sexual force, and our divine mother is the one who is nurturing us. And providing us all we need in this lifetime, including all of our test trials and ordeals, then our Divine Mother is the one who's orchestrating how the adversary moves. Our innermost being is on this side of the board. in this visualization down here.
okay? Our innermost being is the White Lodge. And these are the pieces that it has at our disposal. We are those pieces, but he is the king. And yes, our Divine Mother is here, the most powerful piece available to us. And we have the other pieces, and we have, these are all our faculties that we have available to us. And we must defeat these egos over here. But how those egos move, the, the, the choices that those egos make, how they react to our moves. Because remember, we move first. White moves first. Our egos always react. Our egos are always react. They're reactionary. Our Divine Mother is there to test and challenge us and create ordeals which are always in reaction to the moves that we make and the progress that we've made. So it's our Divine Mother who's our adversary. In other words, we cannot hate our adversary. It's wrong to hate our adversary. To even hate the egos, it's wrong. It's a trap. We need those egos. We don't need to indulge them. We don't need to hold on to them. We don't need to identify with them. We don't need to say, yes, they're as much a part of me as anything else, like Carl Jung did. No. We need to defeat them. In the same way that when you play a game of chess, you need the black pieces on the board. At the beginning, you need an adversary. Otherwise, you're not playing chess. You can't play chess by yourself. It doesn't matter what any people anybody says. You can't do it. It can't be done. You cannot do it because you cannot disassociate yourself. And you cannot test and challenge yourself. You cannot forget what you're doing with the white pieces, walk around to the other side of the board and be a completely objective, independent, third-party player. But guess what? Your Divine Mother is not trying to defeat you. Your adversary is not trying to defeat you. Your Divine Mother is not moving those chess pieces in the strictest sense. She's trying to make you a better chess player. She's trying to make you a master. What's more is that our ultimate goal is to become a grandmaster of chess, of life. And that means playing many, 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 many games of, of, of chess, defeating the ego many, 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 many times, and playing ever more challenging opponents. The adversary becomes stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger, the, be the, the better we become, and the more stronger we become, the adversary, the challenges we face, become greater still, become stronger still. Dante's ladder, Jacob's ladder, the spiral, the, the hero's journey, as we've described, the alm of life, time and again, 
The higher you go, the lower into hell you go. When you defeat your opponents in hell, you raise up and now you're at a higher level. It's Dungeons and Dragons. All of these things. And it's chess. So yes, the shadow depends on the light. The shadow works for the light. Because the light side, the white side, has nobody to play against without the shadow. Has no adversary and has nothing to defeat. And the adversary has to challenge. It has to be in a position to win. And it can win because you see so many people fall into darkness. And they fall into the downward spiral. We see that. It is possible. Because karma exists. Because you have to be able to lose the game. But your Divine Mother isn't out to make you lose. But at the same time, you have to be able to lose. Because otherwise, there's no challenge, there's no test. No matter how difficult the game is, if you can always win, ah, then you can just wing it. Ah, you can just sit back and cruise, right? You don't really have to learn how to play the game. You don't really have to learn how to defeat your opponent. Oh yeah, it doesn't matter what they do or whatever. If at the end of the, if at the end of the, the, the day I'm gonna win anyway, then right. so what happens? You get the new age, and you get all you get the Christianity, and you get uh, you get all the religions and that that say, well, you know, the, the afterlife is there waiting for you. Oh, just just pray to Jesus, accept Jesus as your, as your savior, and he'll forgive all your sins. Or in the new age, or the people take mushrooms and say, Oh, listen, we're all one with the universe already anyway. It's all one thing. There is no separation, blah, blah, blah. It's just, oh, just so they just think that they can smoke their pot and eat their mushrooms and cruise their way to ascension and cruise their way into. Can you even begin to, to grasp the hubris of that? The very notion that, that you or I, or that any of these pot-smoking, hippie, uh, uh, you know, mushroom-eating uh, people are going to walk in the halls of Amenti and rub shoulders with the archangels and the ascended masters? That they're, that they're going to end up there? without any effort by smoking pot and eating, eating mushrooms it's sacrilege it's absurd it's somebody who wrongfully believes that they can win a game that they can win chess without playing the game that they can move however they want wherever they want because hey you, you just said that you just said that my divine mother is playing moving the black pieces that means the black piece is all part of me we're all one it's all just an illusion there is no separation blah 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 blah, blah. but guess what if you don't play the game 
you're never going to master the game. And if you don't master life, if you don't master how to defeat your egos, if you don't become a master of yourself, your false self, you will not be a master. You will not be walking and rubbing shoulders in the halls of Amenti with other masters. You will not. And you certainly will not be rubbing shoulders with the grandmasters. Period. Heaven has its hierarchies. It's not practical for just if for countless trillions upon trillions of monads from all the different planets to be rubbing shoulders with a handful of archangels you it just it can't it just doesn't happen as above so below it's in the same way that the elite here in the world you don't we don't have access to the elite i can't go over to leonardo dicaprio's private island off the coast of belize i can't do that it's not practical because I know when I got there, there'd be 50,000 young screaming girls on the beach trying to get his aut autograph <laughs> or what or whatever, right? That's why he has an island off the coast of Belize. Now, it's, we're, not, we're not trying to equate the ascended masters to uh, uh, idols and and you know, movie stars and rock stars. It's just that as above, so below. The hierarchies above are reflected in the hierarchies here. It's just that we live in an upside down world. We live in hell, which means those who ascend to these high levels here in the world are happen to be ruled by the Black Lodge, right? They're they desire fame and fortune and power and control, right? That's why the hierarchies are what they are on this planet. As above, so below. And we're in hell. We're in hell. This planet is, is in hell. It's, it's ruled by the black pieces. Benjamin says, just like in the Batman movies, the Joker could not exist without Batman. And the Joker wouldn't kill Batman even if he had a chance. They're like in an eternal dance, just like chess. Except that in chess, your king can die. It's called checkmate. You can be beaten. The joker is out to beat you in chess. The joker is not just out to play with you and have fun. The joker is out to play with you, have fun, and win. Because... There's going to be another game. We return. And we return to face the same egos, the same adversary we faced the last time. So we're sure you've heard the expression, best two out of three. In, in world championship level chess, when grandmasters are playing, 
it's best out of seven, we believe, if we're not mistaken. It's best out of seven or best out of nine games. Or maybe it's best out of seven games. They okay, so it's they play for either a, a whole week or ten days for in a world championship. And each one of those days, they're they're it's either best out of seven or best out of nine. Um so yeah. So the Joker isn't afraid to kill Batman because Batman's coming back. And if Joker beat Batman the last time, Joker's going to come back even stronger this time. So he's going to even have more fun the next time. But we we get where you're coming from. It's just we, we wanted to elaborate that and expand on that because we don't want anybody to get the idea, again, that we cannot lose to our adversary, to the Black Lodge, to our egos, because our egos are afraid of killing us because, frankly, when we die, our egos continue to haunt us. We go into Klipoth. Depending on how overwhelmed we are with egos, depending on how strong their position on the board was when they defeated it, when we died, when the game ended, we go into the lunar astral plane. And we dream like we go every night and we dream and the egos just just screw with us all night. And sometimes they screw with us to such a degree that we might even have a wet dream. If lust has its way with us while we sleep and perhaps we've eaten too much red meat or, or too much spicy food and we have a lot of excess energy lust comes and it feeds while we're sleeping and after we die if we've not awakened if we've not done the work if we haven't earned our place in the supernal worlds if we haven't created our solar bodies and we aren't able to go to the solar astral plane well then we die we go to the lunar astral plane and all the egos go with us so the joker goes with us with Batman into the dream world. So in that sense, in that sense, we must expand our comprehension of the relationship between Joker and Batman. We must, we must expand it to Batman versus the so-called rogues gallery. Because there's the Joker the Riddler, there's there's Dr. Freeze, and there is the Scarecrow. And where does the Scarecrow haunt Batman? In his dreams. The Scarecrow puts, puts people to sleep. And then he haunts their dreams. That's that archetype. So it's and then there's Poison Ivy. Uh, Catwoman is not really technically in the rogues gallery. Depending on which version of Batman we're... Catwoman is sometimes Batman's adversary. Sometimes he's like borderline lover. Like she's... 
she's really the, the divine feminine, like the like the divine mother. But then there's also poison ivy. And poison ivy, again, depending on which narrative of Batman, which uh, interpretation of Batman, and there have been many, countless ones. Um, presumably, there have been ones where poison ivy is trying to seduce Batman. The only uh, female character that doesn't really try to seduce Batman is um, is uh, is Harley Quinn, but that's because Harley Quinn is uh, the companion of the Joker. She's a, completely obsessed with the Joker, and she's in a a um, a toxic relationship with him. He abuses her, but she's obsessed with him. So. She has no interest in romantic interest in Batman. Um, so that's really like the feminine energy that's bottled up and obsessed with the ego. But of course, Batman is the Dark Knight, so he's a anti-hero. And he's he is haunted by this rogues gallery, and they all represent in many ways, the Jungian archetypes of the shadow self that Batman has to try to conquer. He has to try to contain them, he, and that's what Arkham Asylum is for. Dylan says, is Catwoman Lilith? Uh, in this... She has that aspect to her, but it really depends on which version of Catwoman we're talking about. But she's uh, she's not exactly a villain, Right, she's not she's not a she's not exactly a part of the rogues gallery. If she isn't, she isn't. But again, it depends on the interpretation and the author. So so it depends on which version of Catwoman we're talking about here. Because Catwoman often ends up fighting with Batman. She ends up siding with him. She's like the female version of Batman. It's almost as if she is the feminine side of batman and because batman is a dark hero he's a he's an anti-hero then his feminine aspect must also have that anti-heroic quality to them so she can exhibit the elements of lilith but she can also exhibit the elements of the divine mother she can come and save batman's ass in a tight spot. She can save him. She can rescue him. She can defeat one of his opponents temporarily and get him out of a tight spot. She can use her whip and catch him as he's falling and, you know, and, you know, since she plays that role, that she plays that role. And then, of course, she can be his romantic counterpart. Although that isn't played, the best of our knowledge, that isn't, that isn't played up too much. Um, for whatever reason, they uh, they prefer to uh, to have um, 
Batman involved with uh, with Batgirl, Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And that's so there's been a lot of evolution and there's been a lot of uh, controversy around the character, certainly in the comic books. In the films, it's been a, it's been a different story. Incidentally, uh, if we're speaking about writing, uh, we have a, a concept for a script that we began working on. Um, and we just put it aside. Maybe we'll pick it up again once this book we're working on now is, if, it, if we get traction, if we get headway and uh, we get published, then we may turn our, our efforts to uh, the screenplay, where it actually could be a stage play or a screenplay. And um, we wouldn't say too much about it, um, on a live stream because uh, we feel it's a good idea and it's easily somebody could easily run with it. It's, it wouldn't take it wouldn't take somebody uh, much to to work it up in their own version of it. But the basic concept is that the rogues gallery is literally the shadow self of Batman. And the script explores Batman having to go and descend into a metaphorical, a metaphor of his subconscious mind and confront all of the various villains inside the rogues gallery. And it culminates in his confrontation with the Joker. And each confrontation leads to a transmutation. But we're mixing our metaphors in our description. So clearly, this would all be on a literal level, and everything that we're describing to you would be implied and would be that would would be esoterically there. And then so on the surface level, it's Batman, you know, going into Arkham Asylum that's been taken over by the Joker, and he's released all the villains and they've all set up and so if you've ever played the arkham asylum games that's the con that's based on the comic the arkham asylum where the joker takes over the arkham arkham asylum and he releases all the bad guys and all the bad guys take up shop in arkham asylum and they create new layers out of various different buildings and cell blocks in arkham asylum like for example poison ivies Poison Ivy creates this, this indoor uh, 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 rainforest of her man-eating plants and her poisonous, poisonous uh, flowers and whatnot. And she's just sitting there. And they're all waiting there. The rogues gallery are waiting in Arkham Asylum for, for Batman to show up. And, and the Joker has taken it all over. And, and Batman has to face off against each one of these 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 adversaries these villains as he's making his way through arkham asylum to the final encounter with the joker this is right out of the comic book this is right out of the video game arkham asylum now what we've done is took that concept and said well it doesn't have to be a comic book it doesn't have to be a video game why couldn't it be a stage play and why couldn't it be a screenplay and in the final scene when he confronts the Joker. And the Joker, right, reveals to Batman 
the etymology of Joker. Joker, and we start playing with J and Y, right? Joker, Joker, Yokel. Uh, how do we how do we do this? Joker, yo, Joker, Yokel, and uh, we get to Loki. Loki, Lucy, Lucifer. You see, Batman, I am the one who shows you your dark side, your, your archetype, your shadow. All of these villains, all of the, everybody, they're all here. They were all here for you to come and have to confront because of me. So Joker is an allegory for Batman's Lucifer. Joker sheds the light on Batman's weaknesses. Joker challenges him. Joker, 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 local, uh, uh, yokel, local, Lucy, Lucifer, something like that. In much the same way that we wrote the uh, the paragraph on ego, and how all of these 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 relationships between between words. And we, we, we paint this picture, the same thing is about Joker. And so in the final scene, uh, uh, they end up, uh, Joker ends up embracing Batman, right? And, they, and he starts laughing. And, and, and Batman starts crying. But they're like tears of joy. And they're like laughing and crying and laughing and crying. And like, if you can... Visualize the camera spinning around them, spinning them around them, spinning around them, uh, spinning around, and then it fades, and then there's just Bruce Wayne hugging himself, laughing and crying tears of joy. And then all of a sudden, the lights come on. Poof, a spotlight appears on him. Poof, and you hear a voice. Mr. Wayne, is everything all right, Mr. Wayne? And he starts squinting and looking up into the light, like, like who the hell's talking, right? And he goes, "This is Doctor Meridian, Mr. Wayne. Would you? Is it all right if I came in and and spoke with you?" And then he would be like, "Yeah, I guess. Where, where am I?" And he goes, and and she says, "You're in Arkham Asylum, Mr. Wayne." You've been here for 33 years. And she comes down into the cell. She goes, you've been in a more or less catatonic state since, your, since the tragic murder of your parents. You went into a catatonic state and you were brought to Arkham Asylum where you've been ever since. And you've you occasionally you occasionally sleepwalk and you do things in your sleep but you haven't spoken in 33 years this is the first real sound that you've made in 33 years and then they, they have a little exchange and then and then she finally asks him mr wayne um 
I want to ask you a few questions if that's all right. And she puts up a little chair, uh, a little table, and he sits down and she sits down. She goes, tell me about the Joker, right? And then the lights come up and the white cell, right? This is, there's a, there's a, there's a scene from one uh, comic book that, that we've seen and the, the lights come up and he's been in a padded white cell. But the entire cell has been painted in red. Ha, 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 in all different sides of letters. So it's like they put him into this cell as this little boy, and they gave him toys, and they gave him paint, and they gave him all these things. And he did a lot of these things in his sleep. Like he sleepwalked, and he's gone. But he was like catatonic. He was like a zombie, but he was doing all these things. One of the things that he did is he painted the entire cell. Ha, 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 ha. And somehow Chase Meridian knows that there's that somehow there's this Joker character or whatever. And so Bruce Wayne looks around and he sees this. And then 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 he looks at her and he looks into the camera. And then he goes, and then you know, and then, then he this big smile, this evil Joker's grin comes across his face. And then we cut to the credits. That's how the movie ends. Because we realize. Right, because he's been the Joker the whole time. He's been all of the Rogues Gallery the whole time. That's the the concept of the film. Is that it's a it's a metaphor. The Batman going into Arkham Asylum and facing the Rogues Gallery and facing off against the Joker is the archetype of the shadow work and the transmutation and the comprehension of each one of his uh, villains in the Rogues Gallery. Until he finally faces off against the Joker and he realizes that the Joker has been Lucifer the whole time. And that he's that he is the one that has been setting Batman up to confront all of these villains in order so that he can comprehend himself. And when he finally makes peace with with uh, the Joker, he wakes up from his catatonic state. He wakes up from his dream. He wakes up from his nightmare. He becomes his true self, Bruce Wayne. And the whole time, Chase Meridian, right, his divine mother has been the one looking after him and studying him and helping him and giving him all this stuff that he's been using in this in the in his padded cell and all that stuff. So everybody has their everybody has their relevant their relevant symbols and allegories. Oh, and there's a there's a really cute scene when um, when uh, Bane, because Bane has to come in and break Batman's back, break his spine. Right, that has to happen. That's like that's a that's a meme. It's actually a very it's it's actually uh, we started writing it as a as a like a dark comedy, like bat like a like it's a dark comedy. There's it's Batman, but it's but it's funny. And that scene is Bane cracks Batman's back, and and he leaves him there, and and then you know the light goes down. If because we, we originally saw it as a stage play, the light goes down, and then all of a sudden you hear him. Ag in agony, crying out, screaming in agony. And the lights come up, and Harley Quinn is, is walking on his back. She's got her baseball bat, right? She's in her she's in her onesie, and she's she's walking on his back. Like 
like when I was a kid, my dad would have me walk on his back when his back was sore, like to massage his back. That's what she's doing. And she's like, oh, don't worry. Oh, quit your whining and all this kind of stuff. Oh, quit your whining. Stop being such a baby. You know, I'll have you fixed up in no time. You're in no shape to go see the Joker looking like this. <laughs> you're in no, you know, you're in no shape for, for uh, to go see, uh, to go see uh, uh, the J-Man like this. Because, of course, she works for the Joker. Now, in uh, Batman has to face three female characters in Arkham Asylum. Uh, one is Poison Ivy. That's because th these are the uh, the three gunas. The three gunas are the three manifestations of the Divine Mother. And one manifestation is uh, um, uh, Poison Ivy. One manifestation is Catwoman. And then one manifestation is Harley Quinn. And now Harley Quinn is the one who is closest to the Joker and works for the Joker. But but we all know that the Joker actually, the Joker is the one who made Harley Quinn who she was. So it's, does Harley Quinn work for the Joker or does the Joker work for Harley Quinn? It's in, in, in I want to explore that because if the Joker is Lucifer, that Harley Quinn is Lady Columbia. And she carries that baseball bat because that's that torch in the hand of Lady Columbia. And that's freedom, right? Her Louisville slugger. But, and, um, and so she has to fix Batman so that Batman can go see Joker. And that's what the Divine Mother does, right? The, the Divine Mother heals us, prepares us, in order to face our challenges. And so that that scene of her walking on Batman's back, and then what she eventually does is takes her Louisville slugger and slides it down the inside of his suit and cracks his back and and, and, and straightens out his back in the same way that in um, in uh, the in what do they call it? The Batman rises. Remember, Bane breaks the Batman's back, and he ha and, and he, he he wakes up in the prison, and he has to have his his back healed by the uh, by the doctor. Only on a stage play, you can't you can't show that over I don't know how many how many days or, or how many months or whatever. So on a stage play, it's just one funny scene with Harley Quinn walking on his back and 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 fixing a broken back with her with her rather crude and severe, but highly effective <laughs> uh, uh, back-breaking uh, chiropractic um, uh, uh, process. So, in any case, we had this uh, idea for this, for this screenplay, and, and, uh, or this, this screen-slash-stage play, and it was playing on... How did we get on this topic? Oh, yes. Benjamin talked about Bat Batman movies. So suffice it to say, Benjamin, we have done our fair share of meditating on and contemplating uh, not just Batman and the Joker, but Batman and the Rogues Gallery and what it really represents. And what if, the, you know, so the premise is what if 
Batman's entire experience, that his whole fallen hero, as uh, our dark hero, anti-hero, um, all that story. What if all of that was just a a trauma-induced delusion that he went into a catatonic state when his parents were murdered in that alley in front of him, and he and and the and he just he he fell into. You know, and and so he, and that all of that was all his own psychology. Because that would be a way for us to be able to more vividly draw out the archetypes and the symbolism and the allegory of Batman in the rogues gallery and make it more vividly associated with doing the psychological work, the shadow work, the psychological work, the work on our own egos, the transmutation of our egos into the solar bodies and the integration and association of the three gunas, the divine mother and three different aspects of the divine mother, Joker being revealed as Lucifer, the light bringer, and of course, there's Scarecrow, there's the Riddler, there's the Penguin, and the, all of these other and the uh, the other uh, uh, characters who come into play um, in the in the course over the course of the the drama unfolding. Uh, we did at one point. I don't know if we can uh, find these very quickly, but perhaps we can. So we did at one point um, create because we're 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 so very visual, right? In the and uh, we're not we're not artists. We're not an artist per se, and we're not that skilled when it comes to illustration and uh, and 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 whatnot. But um, because we're so visual, it's it's helpful to us to it's helpful to us to visualize you know so we we thought well you know why don't we make a movie poster and so we found some very art that we really liked and the name of the drama we called Arkham 2B. The 2B comes from the fact that the Joker sends Batman a message saying, you can find me in 2B. But Arkham has many buildings and many floors. And the Joker didn't tell him which one he's in. He just said, you can find me in 2B. So Batman has to go from building to building and each and each building he has to find the room to be 
And of course, this poster, uh, these the we were playing with different, you know, just to get the creative juices flowing and whatever, and letting our imagination. So true love in 2B. Crazy or not, one man will play. Oh, by the way, this is the other interesting thing about this as a film, as a drama. It's a one-man show. One actor plays all the roles. That was that's the gimmick that really hits home and nails home. Oh, yes. Dylan says, don't forget Harvey Dent. Yes, Two-Face. It's important, right? Uh, of course, who was turned, but yeah, right, that's right. Um, so the, the, the point, the key to Arkham 2B as a drama is it's played by one actor. It's a one-man show. And one actor plays all the roles. That hammers home this fact that he really is all these other characters. And he even plays all the female roles. Because after all, our Divine Mother is, is a part of us. So this poster was True Love in 2B. And, and yes, crazy, crazy or not, one man will play Arkham 2B. Um, this is, of course, the Joker and Harley Quinn. This um, this says truth be told, right? With two B two, in uh, truth be told in a one man show, and then there's the Riddler's question mark. Um, Arkham two B. This is actually an Arkham Asylum poster. This is a an ad from the video game Arkham Asylum, which we which we borrowed for the purposes of our, of our creative process and visualizing what, what a kind of, um, um, what the program might be, right? This is another one. This is the, uh, the Joker, um, just shuffling his cards. And then, so we have Arkham and then to be, to be, to be, to be, because all of the different, two B's that that Batman has to go visit. Um, some of these are fan art. So this one's fan art as well, right? So asking the question, is he in 2B or not? Which of course is starting to get more literally close to the reason why we have Arkham 2B, right? Because it's to be or not to be, obviously, right? The whole of the psychological work, the whole of the shadow work, the whole of the path is to be. So, of course, that's where the Joker is. That's where Lucifer is. That's where we're going to find our answers. That's where we're going to find the one who's behind everything. It's when we we go to we go to, to be, to be or not to be. To be is when we're awake. To be is when we get our answers. To be is when we realize that Lucifer is the light bringer and has been working with us this whole time. Uh, a particularly beautiful piece of, uh, of um, fan art, by the way. This is another one. 
we really like this one because we have the ha 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 and then and integrated into that we put the arc ham right so in the ha we have the arc and then we have the h a m so arc ham to be arkham to be And again, integrating this idea that it's a one-man show. So one man will play. Um, another another beautiful piece of fan art. You know, remember we said this about uh, Lord of the Rings? You can always tell the divine inspiration and the, and the archetypal truth in a property when it inspires people to paint it, to, to visualize it, to, to do their own art around it. And uh, it just so happens that uh, Batman is one of those things that there's a tremendous amount of fan art that has uh, been created around. And just look at the, like, the number of people who have wanted to draw Batman and, and do Batman stories and whatnot um, because there is something so compelling about the archetypes and the story and the the... The fallen hero, right? The anti-hero. Anti-hero stories are very popular because it's so easy for us to relate to that because we are all anti-heroes in that sense. Um, this became an evolution to calling it Arkham 2B we said, you know what this really is? This is an apocalypse. And Arkham Apocalypse, we, when that came to us, we, that really connected with us. We really liked that name. And then because, you know, up here, we can zoom in on this. Maybe we can, maybe we can't. Yeah, okay. See if we can zoom in. Okay. What we did was we took the poem, the poem of the ring from Lord of the Rings, and we said, one man to play them all, one man to be them, one man to know them all and in the darkness see them in the final hour when his shadow dies. And that's a playoff of one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor where, where the shadow lies. Again, making that between one mythology and another through poetry and, um, and then Arkham Apocalypse. Because we really are talking about um, a revelation, the revelation. Um, and then there's uh, this one that we had that that's uh, <laughs> um, it says finally the truth will be heard. Arkham to be one man show. It's uh, just a just having fun with the uh, the lettering there, but this is a play on the fact that in the in the Dark Knight Rises, nobody could understand a word of what Bane was saying. <laughs> so 
so this this poster is saying finally <laughs> the truth will be heard <laughs> and then there's bane looking up at he's like ah, like he's like he knows i'm taking a jab at him because nobody could understand what bane was bane was saying in that movie i don't care who you were you had to you had to watch uh, batman rises two or three times before you before you started to actually understand what the hell bane was saying and in our uh, home theater uh, we had to turn up the uh, the center channel speaker and turn on the um, the uh, the the dialogue enhance feature on our home on our home theater just so we could understand what the hell he was saying because it was, it was I mean you know it was ridiculous so anyway this is a this is a play so again this this even though this this uh, we envision this one man show this this stage play this this movie, whatever, this drama, it's it's a it's a dark comedy. We always saw it as a dark comedy, bringing some lightness and not taking itself too seriously, but at the same time, using that platform and that vehicle as a kind of way to disarm people, saying, "Oh, okay, so this is somebody's lighthearted fan take on Batman, and you know, whatever." Bringing a little, maybe he's trying to bring a little bit of campiness back from the original TV series, or who knows, whatever. But disarming them that way, in order to so that they let their guard down enough to be able to approach it in a fresh way. Yeah, subtitles help in understanding what Bane was saying. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, there you go. Um, Benjamin, you know, mentioned one thing, asked one question, and we got uh, an hour worth of uh, uh, <laughs> unwritten, unpublished uh, Batman fan fiction. <laughs> but... Um, but this is this is one of those projects that falls under the category of Atlas Arts. Uh, we have, you know, as we said a long time ago, we went into English and drama at university because it was our vision to make um, films and or plays which were which were uh, which could illuminate the consciousness, which could which could empower individuals and and which was a high art basically right could we make high art and in order to do that we had to go and get some training for that and get some experience and and get some education around around that and we were very fortunate in in uh what we were able to accomplish in our youth in a very short time but then all of that had to be put on the back burner while we took a very, very long journey. We had to go, well, before you can make high art, you have to, you have to know what you, you can't, you can't just, if you really want to know what you're doing, then you have to know. So all of this has been put on the back burner, but now we're, we're at that point where, especially with the lockdowns and everything else, well, I mean, if we're locked down and locked basically under house arrest, why not write? Why not do what we can do? We're doing these live streams. 
and we're on camera here and we're we're doing so why not why not write why not see if we can put out into the world just the world is hungry for content we have these live streaming services we have um you know warner brothers is in a bit of disarray so batman's not a good plan right now but in the next few years who knows there's there's a great deal of money from these live streaming services. Amazon is doing a new Lord of the Rings uh, television series. They just did the Wheel of Time. So there's a lot of desire for content. Well, this, even though I envision this as, as a stage play or as a film, there's no reason why this couldn't be a web, um, a, a streaming series, a limited streaming series. Each episode would be Batman encountering one rogue villain. And it wouldn't be wouldn't have to be long, 30 minutes, 45 minutes episode. That's what these Netflix streaming series usually run anyway. Okay. So, 3 hours. Anyone have any other questions or comments? Cuz if not, we can call it a night. See, there's an example. Of, there's there's example, uh, uh, an example of something we didn't think we were going to be talking about tonight. Benjamin says, that's wonderful, sir. Truly creative. Praying for your success. You can produce art with substance because you know esotericism. Well, we do now. We know a little bit more than we did. The question is, can we produce uh, dramatic, compelling, and uh, humorous dialogue? That's the hard part. <laughs> and can we do it where the story takes precedent and the, the, the story takes front and center and the esoteric meaning is in the background so that people find it endearing? Because if you put, if you put the... There's too much nowadays where people put theme and the message and everything like front and center and they're trying to like bash people over the head with it. Uh, it's not our intention to do anything like that here. Like our 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 intention is to make a a a an entertaining piece of work, a beautiful piece of work, an interesting, engaging, uh, dramatic, humorous journey, a heroic journey. For the audience to participate in and live vicariously through the characters so that they can possibly hopefully have a cathartic experience that's what plato said is the highest form of theater and tragedy is is to invoke catharsis in the audience that through the visceral and um, um, experience and vicarious experience through the characters on the stage, and that stage must be, cannot be real life. It has to be ethereal, heightened reality that, um, that, that the audience can experience comprehension, right? Moments of clarity, 
catharsis. Kim Foster, uh, Kim Foster Tuki, Tuki. We hope we're, we're pronouncing that right. I showed up at the end, but I'll be watching replay. Thank you for these live shows. You're very welcome, Kim. It's it's our honor and privilege and pleasure. Benjamin says, just like Shakespeare during his time. Well, if Manly P. Hall is correct, we have no reason to doubt him. In fact, we know he's correct when he says that Shakespeare was Sir Francis Bacon. But not only was Shakespeare Sir Francis Bacon or Sir Francis Bacon was Shakespeare, it's, it's six of one, one half dozen of the other. Uh, Sir Francis Bacon is really Count St. Germain. And you can read about Count St. Germain through from many, many sources online, but Master Samael writes fairly extensively about him and the the incredible work that he's been doing this for this humanity for thousands of years. Um, he's an ascended master, but he's here. And he has been many different, very, uh, you know, famous and influential people. And he's been influencing humanity and having a powerful impact on humanity. And there is nothing absolutely nothing that can compare with Shakespeare, period. As an actor, having studied acting as a martial art, we can tell you that the divine inspiration, the, the power, the Christic light and force is in the text. When you, when you act Shakespeare in the way that we studied it, the Lascombian method, which is not method acting, it's not ego, it's not losing yourself in the character, it's, it's doing martial arts, and it's allowing the energy that is in the text to, to move you and come through you. In many, it's like you surrender to the divine intelligentsia that inspired the work. And that, in, that divine intelligentsia comes through your innermost being because your innermost being is an essence of the Logos. Because the Logos wrote Shakespeare. Because St. Germain, as an ascended master, is one with the Logos. So, of course, Shakespeare speaks to everybody and is universal. Because in a, in a very real way, everybody wrote it. The Logos wrote Shakespeare. Count St. Germain was the individuated monad, the individuated being, the, the, the essence, the ascended master, who was the messenger and vehicle of the Logos in that case. Under the, under the, the guise, under the name of Sir Francis Bacon and then Shakespeare, he he wrote it down, what came to him. In the same way that we, or sorry, I did not write Ratatoskr and the Seed. 
I am not writing this book. And so, uh, and I didn't write or am not writing, uh, you know, Arkham Apocalypse. Right? That whole idea, it's not my idea. It was, I received that idea. And, um, and Shakespeare is absolutely, it's, 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 a, it's, there is nothing better for, certainly for me as an actor, there will never be anything better to perform than Shakespeare. It's just absolutely, it's literally like, it must be for me, it is for me as it must be for a musician who plays, you know, in Beethoven's, you know, in the orchestra, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, or any of Beethoven's music, or the pastoral from, from the Fifth Symphony, or, 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 or Wagner, or Mozart, or like any of these musicians who, who get to play Mozart's music. It must be for me as it is for them, where they're, where they're just, you know, the, 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 the energy, the power, the beauty, the love, the truth in the music is is flowing through them and moving them the music is playing itself the musician is the instrument in high art the artist is the instrument that's the magic when and you can feel it when you're in that when you're in the moment or if you're in the presence of an artist, you can feel the difference if when you're when you're in the presence of a performer or an artist or, or whatever who is who is motivated by ego and one who is who is divinely inspired. If you're sensitive to that, you pay attention to that, you can feel the difference and you can hear it and feel it in their work. Any other comments or questions? Um, before we sign off for this evening, we want to thank, of course, all of you for, uh, for joining us this evening. We want to thank you for indulging us with your time and patience. Uh, letting us share with you a bit of our creative process on our book. We hope that you found the information valuable. We found this process valuable for the reasons that we already shared with you. Um, again, because it's so it's so useful to speak aloud in the moment, in the spontaneity of that, and allowing it to flow like a fountain, because it can flow when we're speaking. I can't type as fast as it can flow, or I make mistakes or whatever, I've got to go back and change things or that. You know, and so that I lose the flow when you're when you're typing. But speaking, I don't have that obstacle. 
There's no, I can touch type. I'm much better and much faster, but I still make mistakes. I still make accidents uh, or uh, uh, typos and, and all, you know, then the formatting things and all this, like all this other like distraction that comes into place of trying to get it down. And even though I'm a touch typist and I'm pretty fast, I'm like nowhere near as fast as some people, but I'm still no stenographer. Right, like those, like those court stenographers who could who have those special keyboards, and they could just they record in real time what people are saying. It's I'm I'm never going to be like that. I'm way too way way too past that 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 ship sailed long ago. But um, with the touch typing, I'm pretty good. But still, it can't compare to the freedom. And again, I used to do uh, improvisation on stage, and I did Shakespeare on stage, and and I do feel most comfortable on the stage. And even I used to, I used to be able to, uh, to this day, if I wanted to, I can still uh, improvise dramatic monologues. It's it's not difficult for me, but I have to be saying, I have to be saying it out loud. I can't be trying. I can't improvise a monologue and type it at the same time that doesn't work that doesn't work in fact ratatoskr and the seed was a tremendous challenge for the various reason that is that a few stanzas would come to me you know and i write them down and then i have to pick up the poem where i left off and then complete so what i should really probably do is just like talking to a recorder. Um, Kim Foster Toki says, art or creativity should flow like channeling. To me, that's the most inspiring art. We hope you're not referring to real channeling. Um, but hopefully we we you're just referring to channeling your innermost being your higher self and the creative spirit that's flowing through you which is not really channeling channeling that's just being that's being awake that's being conscious and serving and being a vessel and a messenger for your true self in other words that's just being a true human being that's not channeling um, um, so the word channeling, um, is an actual specific word that refers to spiritism and channeling another entity. Uh, channeling is a spiritual crime. It's a violation and it comes with a very high karmic price. Um, it's, it's spiritism. It's black magic. Uh, no member of the White Lodge uh, condones nor practices channeling in its official esoteric designation. So many, many people use the word channeling incorrectly. And it's important that we don't or we try our best not to use channeling incorrectly because we may inadvertently encourage others or mis, uh, misrepresent or misrepresent the word and, and its meaning.
If we talk about like if I were to talk, if I were to say, oh yes, it's much easier for me to write if I channel something into a into a recorder. Well, then somebody else will read about channeling and how to do channeling, and they will end up, you know, falling into black magic because they heard me say that I channel where I don't channel. I serve, and I listen to, and I write or I speak the words of Atlas of my innermost being, which come from the logos. That's not channeling. That's being. It's being a human being. And it's being a human being done. And as I described, when the way I learned acting as a martial art and the, the what makes Shakespeare so incredible and so magical is that the energy is in the text. Your choices, your decisions. Yes, no, no, that's fine, Kim. We understand. Uh, no, we, we, we get it. We get it. We understand. We understand. And we're not accusing you. As you're, we're just trying to enlighten you on, on the bigger picture around the use of the word and why we want to find another word or find another way to say that. How we bring our source of inspiration, um, the will of our innermost being, and the and the music that's inside of us that we that we want to bring into the world, that which we are here to birth into the world, um, to be a light bearer. In other words, um, so we still have to make choices if we act Shakespeare, but the but the first of all the guidance of the choices to make. And the energy with which to do it and everything is all in the text. It's all there. So all we have to do is surrender to our innermost being and allow the scripture, because I treat Shakespeare as scripture. It's sacred. It's not, it's not bullshit. It's, it's, it's a sacred text. It was written by an ascended master. It embodies timeless universal truths. It, and it, it 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 speaks to every single man, woman, and child on the planet in whatever language you translate it into. And in Hamlet scene three, or sorry, Hamlet act three, are the single most important words ever written in the English language. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take up arms against a sea of troubles and by avoiding end them, to die, to sleep no more, etc., etc., etc. That it's 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 scripture. It's a sacred text. It's a sacred text. And but it's a sacred text that's that's written as poetry, as drama, to be performed, to be dramatized, to be brought alive on the sacred space of the stage. As Plato said, you do not put real life on the stage. That's why Shakespeare is written in that hyper-reality, in that, in that language of a heightened reality. Because if you put real life on the stage, um, Plato said, that's a uh, that's a degradation of the sacred space. <clears throat> it's a it's vulgar. 
It's a vulgarity to put real life on the stage. Because to Plato, the stage was sacred. And to put real life on a stage, it's the same reason why Jesus uh, chased the moneylenders and the traders out of the temple. Because the temple is a sacred space. You don't conduct business. You don't trade money. You don't do banking and lend money. Neither a borrower nor lender be. You don't do that in the temple. It's a sacred space. In the same way, you don't put a, I don't know, a buffet on the stage, right? And and, and allow the audience to come on, to, on stage and have an all-you-can-eat buffet during intermission. You don't do it. The stage is sacred. The audience doesn't go on stage. It's a sacred space. And and Shakespeare is that. Shakespeare was belongs in a space of love. Because that's what it is. It was written with love. It inspires love. It speaks to love. And in the truth of love as severity and mercy, it, it holds up the torch of Lucifer and illuminates with severity the dark side of humanity, our shadow. It illuminates the shadow. Shakespeare does not shy away and back away from the darkness that lurks within the hearts of men. Macbeth is proof enough of that. And King Lear, the madness on the heath, is proof enough of that. And and we could go on and on and on and on and on. So, uh, anyone else have any comments or questions or queries or anything else they'd like to add? Because otherwise, we'll call it a, we'll call it a night. We're down to four viewers anyway, so most most people have signed off. <laughs> so, <clears throat> thank you all for uh, taking, again, your time and your patience, your attention. It's always, we're always grateful and we're always humbled. Um, the We are going to continue on our three live streams a week uh, approach into the new year. And uh, hopefully we will be able to have an opportunity to share more of our works and progress with you if you're okay with that if not uh you can just let us know and we won't do that we won't do it anymore and we won't make every live stream be that while we're while we're doing this work but um it is helpful to us so if if you're willing to to if you find it valuable and, you, and you're willing to uh, go through the process then we would love you to be a part of our creative process why not why not? Because again, this is Atlas in formation. And we're not, you know, we we need all the help we can get with the Atlas project. And if the help we can get is being able to share and being able to get feedback and did as we did tonight, being able to hear ourselves saying things that 
came into our mind once today already, earlier today, but it didn't find its way into our text for one reason or another. Those pieces of the puzzle were somehow forgotten. Well, now, after this live stream, we've heard them, we've seen them, and now we know to put them back in the puzzle. And we will do. And they will be in, in the picture, in the puzzle, in time for Monday afternoon's live stream, when maybe we'll have an updated revised version of this that we will be able to share with Monday's live stream because Monday afternoon live streams are recaps of Wednesday and Friday night. So what people in Europe and in other time zones and Africa and other time zones, that's not convenient to them to be able to, to tune in Wednesday nights and Friday nights, they can tune in Wednesday afternoon, which for them is Wednesday, or sorry, they can tune in Monday afternoon, which is for them Monday evening, because two o'clock our time is seven o'clock Greenwich Mean Time, which means it's eight o'clock for the middle of Europe. So that's that's the balance, that's the compromise that we came to with uh, with those who are in that part of the world, and they seem pretty happy with that arrangement. So we're going to continue doing that for the time being. Benjamin says, thank you as well, sir. Your generosity is highly appreciated. Have a nice weekend. All of you have a, 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 a happy, a blessed weekend. And um, we will see you again Monday if you can tune in on in the afternoon. If not, we will see you next Wednesday or next Friday, as the case may be. Um, all the best and uh, inverential peace. And we wish you all good night.